Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. My name is Glenn de Guzman. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I'm your host for today's episode. And I'm coming to you from Livermore, California, the ancestral homelands of the Ohlone people. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope that these conversations make a contribution to our field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. You can find us at studentaffairsnow.com. We're also on Twitter and now Instagram. So today's topic is something that I've been weighing in on both on a personal and professional level. And it's around this topic of trauma and its impact on staff, students, and just faculty across higher education. Our student affairs field has always operated in this context by which we always help students overcome a variety of obstacles, both inside and outside the classroom. But what happens when this trauma amongst the providers becomes too pervasive? For many student affairs professionals who try to support students to overcome this trauma, we're now becoming overwhelmed. I mean, I've got parent issues, helping my kids with their schooling. I've got health concerns with my parents, the politics outside the intersections of my social identities. It's just coming from all directions. So joining us today to discuss this very important topic um, are Dr. Jane Summers from the University of St. Thomas, Steve Herndon from the University of Dayton, Amanda Kinnear from Indiana State University, and Dr. Keith Edwards, a former university administrator turned independent consultant. So welcome. And I'd like to start by having each of you introduce yourself, maybe the professional roles in a little bit more depth, and just what you'd like to share about your work, your scholarship, your research uh, in general. Why don't we start with Keith? My name is uh, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach, and you can find out more about me uh, at keithedwards.com. I guess I come to this, I, I get to work with lots of different campuses every year, and I see this issue from campus to campus to campus, and each campus seems to think there's this unique thing that they're facing, uh, from the student crises to the new professionals and what they're facing and what they're experiencing, and then supervisors trying to manage. Um, it just seems to be showing up in so many different ways, and so I was been thinking about this a lot, and it's great to work with these folks to, to think about it more thoroughly, and I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Thank you, Keith. Steve? Um, my name is Steve Herndon. I'm the Assistant Vice President for Student Development and Executive Director of Housing and Residence Life at the University of Dayton. My pronouns are he, him, his. Um, why this topic has particular relevance for me is because uh, the University of Dayton is a very high touch, very residential um, institution. We are 80% residential across all four years. So my staff and the staff in the Dean of Students Office have a very intimate understanding of our students' lives. And I think in the process, we're constantly in, being introduced and having to um, introduce to others trauma as we're managing um, our own. And as our work is becoming more intense and complex, the, the difficulty of that has increased. And so having strategies for, for managing trauma's impact on you as your call to be present for others is, is really important. Thanks, Steve. Amanda. Hi, um, my name is Amanda Kinner, and I go by she, she, her, hers pronouns. And 
Um, I currently serve as the Executive Director for Residential Life at Indiana State University. Um, and you know, I've spent my entire career in residential life and housing. And similar to what Steve said, uh, our teams are constantly working with students who are bringing all sorts of trauma and crisis into the residence halls, where they're struggling to work through that in order to be successful. And over the years, I've watched our teams struggle as they're uh, coming to assist, to help, to support these students, and then having to work through that after the fact, often on their own, um, without a lot of support and resources. And then in the current climate, um, watching our team struggle with racial fatigue, watching our team struggle with the pandemic and uncertainty of what's going to happen with their job and careers. Um, I would just watch that impact of that daily trauma in how they do the work and how they support um, our students regularly. Thanks, Amanda. It's good to have another fellow res lifer along with Steve. And Jane. Yeah, hi, my name is Jane Summers. Uh, I use she, her, hers pronouns. I'm an assistant professor at the University of St. Thomas in uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I teach uh, primarily and in and direct our leadership and student affairs master's program. Um, so the graduate preparation program for, uh, you know, one piece of the next generation of student affairs folks. Um, and I also teach in our doctoral program. We have a EDD in educational leadership and learning. Um, and so I have observed a lot of what um, uh, the other three have talked about um, in students that are, you know, making their way, these master students who are making their way to this profession um, and learning, uh, being socialized into this profession. And there's sort of this disconnect between what we talk about in the program around balance and we try to talk about boundaries, which I know we'll talk more about how hard that is, particularly in live-in positions. We talk about the importance of balance. I have them read about balance, some really great pieces about balance. But then when they're in their professional positions and their assistantships and as they, you know, rise in the ranks, they don't, we're socialized to, as, as we said before, um, you know, not practice balance very well. Um, and so, so, you know, we see, we see a lot of burnout. We see um, also this, as we've identified this management of, of the trauma that students bring to us um, and then also at the same time need to pay attention to the to the own to our own trauma that we bring to our work and that's I think what our focus will be today is to talk about not only how to support students who are experiencing trauma but how to recognize and work through and manage our own trauma in our work and so my aim is to figure out how we infuse these conversations into professional preparation programs and then of course our professional organizations that will support uh, those of us who continue to do the work throughout our lifetimes. Thanks, Jane. So yes, is a good segue because it's really, what I want to do is I want to make sure that we launch into this topic by establishing for the audience how we even define trauma or even trauma stewardship. I know that you all have collaborated and I've reviewed some of your written pieces, which are amazing. And so I'm going to, I'm going to look into you, Jane. I'm looking to you, Keith. If you can even speak to how you define trauma for the audience and, and, and even the con this concept of trauma stewardship. How did you get invested in this topic? Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, as, as we've heard us do our introductions, right? Like I'm even getting a little overwhelmed just listening to this, all the things that we're dealing with and that were going on. And, um, I, you know, I think we started this conversation noticing that in ourselves, seeing that in the professional staff that we work with seeing it in students, seeing it in our families, seeing it in our kids. And so we really uh, came to this because I, I think a lot of us fall into the trap of waiting for the world circumstances to change, waiting for this thing to stop, waiting for this thing to pass, and then I can go back to normal. 
Well, the reality is the reality of the world is not going to change to meet your needs. You have to figure out how to meet your needs given the realities of the world. And um, someone who I look up to, Tara Brock, who's a psychologist and meditation teacher, says you have to stop arguing with reality. Mm. And um, I think trauma, as we've defined it, we've defined trauma um, using definitions from a lot of other smart people as the short and long-term direct and indirect response to deeply distressing events. I'll say that again. Trauma is the short and long-term direct and indirect response to deeply distressing events. And we got a few of those, right? I was just uh, some notes before this. Uh, as people have said, um, we're COVID, global pandemic, quarantine, lockdown, fear of getting sick. Every time I get a tickle in my lungs, I'm like, oh no. Uh, seeing racial injustice in our communities and protests and response worried about loss of jobs. Some people are experiencing loss of jobs, furloughs. Uh, I'm doing fifth grade and third grade at home, schooling at home. There's a presidential election that is stressing me out. Um, forest fires, inability for some people to breathe clean air, hurricanes, mom's breast cancer diagnosis is coming up. We're worried about dad's dementia, the kids cough. Um, and then for our students, all of that, plus they may be lost prom, which they probably thought was gonna be awesome, whether that was gonna be the reality or not. They missed graduation, they lost an athletic season they've been leading up to their whole lives. Uh, they're trying to have teenage romantic relationships via text and FaceTime, which is a disaster. They're living at home, which some of them like, but some of them are dreading. The entire anticipated college experience they've looked through their whole life is not happening the way they imagined it. And then the things that have been going on before this, uh, sexual violence, impending DACA decisions, micro and macro aggressions, mental health issues that are emerging at this time in their adult lives and being exasperated by uh, the circumstances around them, being misgendered in class and worrying about climate change. <laughs> and then just going through with all of that and then just doom scrolling on Twitter and Facebook and just hoping for some good news and seeing more bad news and more bad news and bad news. And so there's just so much for us to respond to and how do we not wait for all of that to pass and clear up, but how do we figure out um, how we're gonna navigate that? And that would be um, trauma stewardship. And so maybe Jane wants to say a little bit more about that. I do, and I, I first need to say that whenever I think about this concept of trauma stewardship and the book that we uh, use to sort of frame talking about this, um, you know, I'll never forget, I mean, Keith and I were sitting in a coffee shop, and I'm sure at some point I was either had tears in my eyes or was shedding tears about sort of managing a lot of what Keith just listed, and I'm sitting here trying to take deep breaths as you're listing all these things, Keith, um, and you said, have you heard of this book, Trauma Stewardship? Um, and I think you sent me the link and I mean, you know, the subtitle is an everyday guide to caring for self while caring for others, which whenever I, you know, that phrase to any of us who do this work, I mean, it's so compelling. How do I care for myself while I'm caring for others? Um, and so, you know, I'll never forget that gift that you gave me of recommending this book and this model. And I've, I've used it, um, you know, moving forward with students. Um, and the things that I found particularly helpful for me was I think about this metaphor of, you know, we say all the time that you can't pour from an empty cup. We hear it all the time, but we keep pouring because we actually don't know what our empty cup looks like, right? We've never really thought through when, when we should be actually taking the cues that our cup is approaching empty. Um, so that's where this idea of burn 
burnout comes from, which we use this phrase all the time, but we also don't really talk about what burnout looks like. What are the symptoms of burnout? What are the sort of warning signs of burnout? Um, and so then when we don't know what we're looking for, we get sort of to a tipping point where we're like, I have to take a mental health day. I have to escape the work. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, I want us to think about how often do we actually escape? How often do we actually step away from the work? How often do we actually not check our email on the day that we say we're not going to? Um, and, 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 and do we, on those days, do we actually do what we need to do to return really ready to re-engage? Or is it just sort of this band-aid thing that, that, that we return at the same place or very quickly get back to that same place? So, what I appreciate about the trauma stewardship model um, is uh, that the, it sort of starts with this idea of thinking about the effects of trauma exposure on us. Um, so our, uh, our exposure to, to trauma and the way we respond to that trauma. Um, and so some of the warning signs um, that really spoke to me as someone with a long career uh, that started in residence life, moved to orientation, um, and now I'm on the, the faculty path, um, some, some things that really spoke to me are the idea that the sort of getting the sense that we can never do enough um, and sort of hyper vigilance around our work right anyone who's held a duty phone can can remember the effect of that ringtone a particular ringtone and sort of the post-traumatic response to that sort of my own needs then get completely negated and I need to turn my attention to what the students need. Um, and so we're constantly hypervigilant. We're checking our email all the time. We want to respond to students and supervisors quickly. Um, and we also, when we are in this mode of sort of surviving all of this trauma, we lose our ability to embrace complex thinking. We think very, you know, in a very binary way of sort of right or wrong responses. Um, we get very black and white. We lose our ability to sort of hold the beauty of, of paradoxical truths, um, which doesn't serve any of us well and doesn't allow us to actually serve, you know, students and to see the whole picture of what, what we might be facing. Um, and then of course, chronic exhaustion. Right, like this is what burnout typically looks like for us, and we recognize this when we are constantly exhausted. Maybe we're having, you know, physical manifestations of, uh, you know, we're uh, sort of, you know, physical manifestations of handling trauma, and we're always tired. Um, and then, you know, Keith talked about doom scrolling. The, the thing that was like a huge aha moment for me in this model is naming that as disassociation. That when we spend time on social media or even when we incessantly scroll through news outlets, we are actually disassociating from feeling and working through the trauma that's coming from what it is that we're seeing on our screens. Um, and so we disassociate it in a number of different ways. Maybe it's, you know, um, it's it's, it's binging a, a Netflix show, uh, maybe it is scrolling through social media. These are, and we do these things, right, to sort of check out, but we don't actually ever check out. We're, we're not really actually healing from the trauma that we're experiencing when we check out in this way. Um, and, then I, <laughs> and then I think one of the other ones that really spoke to me is this idea of sort of anger and, and, and cynicism. So like so we may start to feel sort of annoyed by very reasonable requests um, from students or from supervisors when we feel when overwhelmed 
overwhelmed, when we are living in a state of overwhelm, we naturally sort of resent anyone who is asking us for more. Um, and, and this can happen not only with students or supervisors, but also with family members, right? Like I get to a point where I'm like, I can't, re I can't read that text, I can't respond to that text because I simply have no more to give uh, because of all of all, you know, that I'm holding my own and, and students trauma as well. Um, so, so those are the signs of, of trauma exposure. Um, that are identified by uh, the authors of this book. And so then the authors then move forward to offer this model of trauma stewardship, which we all on this um, call found to be super duper valuable to sort of like, okay, so here's what it looks like. How could we possibly practice perpetual healing and you know, be able to stay engaged in our work as opposed to burning out. Um, and so there are sort of four key elements um, to the trauma stewardship model. Uh, I haven't named the authors yet. Uh, they are Laura Van Lipsky and Connie Burke. Um, so again, brilliant, brilliant uh, thinkers that have really helped us think about, you know, approach this trauma zeitgeist in a different way. So there are these four key elements. Um, so the first one is creating a space for inquiry. So really on a daily basis, waking up and asking why we do this work. Why do we stay? Um, and really thinking about the concept of identity versus vocation. Um, that yes, we should feel called and fulfilled to do our work, but our work is not our identity. Our work is not who we are. We should have a healthy sense of separation from our work and not be completely defined by our work and be able to recognize and answer that why question on a daily basis. Um, and this has a lot to do, our, our confusion of identity and vocation has a lot to do with boundaries, which I know Amanda will talk about later, especially in live-in positions, how we don't, we're not socialized to practice boundaries uh, right away in our work with students. Um, so, so this is the idea of just coming back to our why. The second element is choosing our focus. And we, in, a, in our thinking about this, really thought a lot about the idea of mindfulness um, and the value of mindfulness in our work. And again, this, like, this intention of where do we, once we answer the why question, then we go deeper and think about what is my focus for the day? What's my intention for this day? Um, and we've talked as a group about, um, you know, when we engage in mindfulness, we can sort of get through the paralysis that sometimes our, our pain and our trauma can bring for ourselves and recognize what it is we truly need. Maybe we need to find a mental health professional to, to, to help us in our own lives. Maybe we need to um, engage in community in a different way. Um, and, and one of the things that, that Steve said in one of our conversations that's just beautiful and will stay with me forever is that there's a difference between showing up from our woundedness and showing up from our wholeness. Mm -hmm. And so if we can get closer to wholeness for ourselves, then we will serve our students that much better as well. Um, the fourth, or excuse me, the third uh, element is building com compassion and community. Um, so we really latched onto this community part um, of this model that, you know, recognition that we are not actually in it alone. Uh, the value of, of, um, of building community, of recognizing uh, the role of community in, you know, what we've historically called um, self-care. Recognition that uh, if we actually want to instill or... Um, or move toward any sort of social change, we have to be engaged in community. The compassion piece of this is also about finding compassion for yourself. Um, so again, that's recognizing what your needs may be uh, 
to truly kind of practice this perpetual healing. Um, and then the fourth element is finding balance, which again, we talk a lot about <laughs> and then don't do very well. Um, and so we've talked about the challenge of, you know, the whole idea of work-life balance and what does that actually look like? And instead invite people to think about how can you build a very, very full life that has elements that, that fulfill you and, and heal you and that integrate work into that very full life as opposed to trying to find what, you know, it never really works, this idea of work-life balance. Um, and then there's this also, this invitation at the end of the model to, to center ourselves daily in these four elements of creating space for inquiry, choosing our focus, building passion, compassion and community, and finding balance. So really kind of daily thinking about how we're putting those four elements into, into practice. Um, and we all have found it to be just an incredibly useful model to help us slow down and bring intention to, this, to, the, to, to staying engaged as we continue to navigate trauma. Thank you, Jane. And thank you, Keith, really for laying an understanding and foundation of trauma and also the, uh, the trauma stewardship model. And in, in, in what, you're, what you shared, Jane, you spoke to um, uh, the connection to living staff, and it's a perfect segue to uh, Amanda. Amanda, you know, um, there were multiple themes that uh, Keith and Jane laid out, um, and I appreciated what they were sharing, particularly the ones that were tied to um, residential life, in, in part because obviously uh, as a, a person who's leading a large, complex residential life program, I am concerned, and I like the term that Jane used, burnout. Um, particularly amongst my staff, I'm really concerned about our younger professionals as well. I know that, Amanda, you have an interest in mentoring student affairs professionals and, and, and obviously supervising um, and developing their professional identities. Can you speak to the impact of the trauma that you are seeing um, on your newer professionals and the strategies for self-care? Sure. Um, I think it's first important to go back and think about the traditional student affairs and campus housing culture, right? Um, so for years, I've been brought up to believe that a good residential life professional is one that is accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that when they retreat to their apartment, the door is kept open, um, and that they are attending all the events in the evening, that they're always there, always sitting at the desk, always playing pool with the team, with the students. Um, they're eating in the dining hall. They're accessible all the time. And also this expectation that they know everything that's going on with their student staff, with their students. And when I think about the times that I have held up to high regard those new professionals, that's an outstanding new professional. My metrics have oftentimes been, they're always taking on the extra tasks. They're going above and beyond the 20 hours a week or the 30, 37 and a half hours a week, or they're available in the evening, or they know all other students. And we set this really high standard. And then at the same time, we sit in our staff meetings and senior leadership team and say, I just don't understand why they seem unengaged at times while they're exhausted all the time, while they're not making good critical think, they're not using good critical thinking to make decisions. They're just coming to us and asking us to tell them what to do. Um, and I think a lot of that has created this, um, this expectation with some professionals that this is what I have to do to be successful in my field um, and successful in my career. And it goes back to the, um, the piece of, this is not only who I am, but this is my identity. And we talk a lot about residential life being a lifestyle and not just a job. And so we've kind of continued to, to build that sense that your identity is who you are in residential life. 
And I think that sets the stage then for our staff to really have and show up with, with dealing with a lot of trauma. Um, not only do they have all their experiences that Keith and Jane mentioned earlier, um, but they're the first responders to some of the students' worst days of their lives. They're the first responders after um, a Title IX situation with serious, serious mental health issues, um, student death situations where they're having to, to sit there with communities and with first-year students trying to help them make sense of all of this. Um, and so then, then, it, then they have to try to work through that. And oftentimes we go and we send them out as first responders to these situations. And we don't follow up with them afterwards to help them work through the impact of those experiences. We check in on the students, we check in on the student staff, but we expect them to be professionals and just manage it. So how does this show up in, in the work or with the students or the student staff members that I see? Um, I think that Jane mentioned some of them, but I see a lot of this hypervigilance, right? That they have to constantly be on their phone, checking email. If a student text, texts them at three o'clock in the morning, I've gotta be right there to respond. If an email happens, I need to follow up immediately. And having a difficulty discerning between what's a true emergency that they need to respond to and what can wait till eight o'clock the next morning. Uh, and also this expectation that my work is really, really important. I can't possibly take a day off because um, I'll miss a one-on-one -on -one and that might be an important one-on-one -on -one meeting with a student staff member. Or I won't show up to this committee meeting if I take a day off. And so getting our young professionals to even take vacation that they've earned to, to get a break, to really reflect on their own experience. Um, I see staff coming into that. Um, the diminished creativity, oftentimes um, when I get a duty call, I want the staff member wants me to tell them what to do rather than them being able to think through what is the best way to handle this situation. When we get to a committee structure, they want me to just hand them a charge. This is what the committee needs to do versus exploring and identifying and creating what that should look like. There's not an ability to think creatively anymore. It's just very much, I gotta go by the book, I gotta follow the directions. The chronic exhaustion, how many times our staff, they go, they go, they go, they go, and you see this pattern where you watch them go furiously and then all of a sudden just have to fall apart and need two or three days to just rest and regroup. And then they go, 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 go. And this pattern happens over and over again. And then finally, this, this sense of persecution, this coming into one-on-one -on -one meetings and saying, you're responsible for how I'm feeling. You're responsible for the fact that I'm exhausted. You're responsible for the fact that I can't think clearly and not being able to um, take ownership and responsibility for the feelings that they're having. Um, and so I see our staff showing up with that. And then how do we help them work through that? And I know Steve's gonna talk a little bit from an organizational perspective, but for our new professionals, some of the things that I encourage them to do is to spend time every day, uh, whether it be prayer or meditation or mindfulness, just taking time to just sit in the silence, to just put away all the distractions and just be, and just to quiet themselves for a few minutes so that they can regroup and really reflect and, and take a break. Um, I think um, helping students or helping our staff really think about what is your why? Uh, I know we spend time every week in our staff meeting and I spend time in a lot of our one-on-ones. What's your why? What's our collective why? What are we trying to accomplish? And reminding of that, the, that often, but then also helping them to find somebody to remind them of that. Uh, and I think even as a seasoned professional, that can be challenging sometimes. I know with everything going on a couple of weeks ago, I just reached my max. I felt like I was coming into the office every day and I was like, What's, what fires am I gonna have to put out today? What's on my to-do list? How many 300 emails today? How am I gonna get through this? I've got five parents to call back. And I just sat there and I thought, why did I go into this field? 
I, I didn't get in here to two emails and talk to mean parents and um, check things off a to-do list. What is my why? And I had to reach out to my colleague and say, friend, I need you to remind me, what's my why? Why are we doing this? Why, why am I here? I don't think it's to put out fires. I don't think it's to do a to-do list and emails. And helping our staff realize that it's okay to reach out and have somebody help you remember what your why is, what your purpose is, why you're here. Not only exploring that yourself, but helping others remind you of that when you lose, when you lose um, your route. Um, and then finally, just taking some time to find some gratitude every day. What's one thing you're grateful for? Maybe it's that hot cup of coffee. Maybe it's that one student conversation yesterday where you felt like there was some movement in the right direction. Um, maybe it's um, getting that one item off your to-do list that's been there for a week. So what, are, what is just something you'd be positive and grateful for so that you're not focused always on the negative? Um, and it's okay to also have a plan B. Sometimes you go through and you're, you're a housing person and you want to do that. And all of a sudden you reach a space where you're like, I'm not finding fulfillment or joy here anymore. And is it okay to have that plan B and plan B to be in a different environment, to be a different campus, to be a different department, to be a different line of work and exploring those options and then being okay, digging in and seeing if that might be a better fit. And that's all okay, I think, to help work through that trauma. I and and it's interesting too, as, as I hear you speak, I keep thinking about trying to do all that in a, in a Zoom environment because it, we don't have that ability to really exercise our, our talents and our strengths where, which really rely on in-person connectivity and, and, and community building. So um, points well taken. Steve, I kind of want to turn to you and I'm particularly obviously as well concerned about how do we support students and staff in these challenges, what advice and recommendations would you give campus leaders uh, to address the mental fatigue and burnout that Unifair staff are facing? Um, well, one of the things that I would start with, and I've been guilty of doing this, everything I'm sharing, I'm sharing from my own experience. Um, I, I know what the living experience entails as I was once a living professional. And I think some of the mistakes that I have made as a supervisor is, um, continuing to compare my experience to my staff's experience. And while the, the topics that we're addressing or the work has some sense of familiarity to it, um, the significant difference is, is that the work has grown in intensity, it's grown in complexity, and it's grown in volume. And so comparing my live-in experience to my staff's live-in experience um, actually does it actually positions us as adversaries or, or martyrs, so to speak, who suffered the most and had the most blurred boundaries between work and environment. And so suddenly it's a competition now between who's the most martyred rather than this being an opportunity for further growth and development. So the first piece of advice I would give is your experience is meaningful, but it is not the same as your staff's experience now. The, the work is very different, and I think it's important for you um, to acknowledge that and for that to influence how you engage your live-in professionals, um, particularly around boundary setting. Um, the other advice is, and I would go, it, this touches upon a, um, something that Jane said earlier, helping staff to understand the difference between vocation and identity. The purpose, the calling, and Amanda talked about this as well, what is my why, what is my purpose, what is my calling? And that asking yourself those questions or helping folks to, to, to ask themselves those questions I think um, helps you to understand the, that your job is the vehicle by which you live out your passion. It's not your identity. And that I love students. I love student learning. I love to be in environments that are situated in learning. I do not love my job. 
I do not hate my job, but my job isn't my identity. My, my job doesn't define my self-worth. And I think particularly with entry-level living professionals, those lines are very much blurred. And I think as much as we can as supervisors to help sort of tease those apart and, and help folks to understand they have a greater purpose and calling, um, but that their job can't become their identity because that's the, those are the conditions for producing the overworked, overstressed martyrs that we often um, find in our profession and that I used to be um, as I was, you know, in competition about who was going to be most martyred, even when I was a hall director. So um, I think the other piece is, are we as intentional as leaders, as supervisors, in terms of talking about where recovery fits within our work? So as I think about crisis management, both from the perspective of being a member of the Dean of Student Staff on my campus, but also um, as the uh, Executive Director for Housing and Residence Life, are we as forthright about the importance of um, recovery in our procedures, in our protocols? We have lots of protocols around crisis, but rarely do I see us be as intentional around the recovery piece and recognizing that's a critical piece um, in addressing the impact of others' trauma on you um, and the experiences that that triggers. And I think as, as much as we can um, incorporate that into our daily practices, then it becomes something that's normalized and something that doesn't seem outside of the quote unquote typical experience. Um, I think recognizing that self-care is not, um, we talked about this a little earlier, and we talked about it throughout our, our various conversations, that similar to how I believe that programming models can are not effective for sustaining learning for the long term or looking at learning in a more developmentally sequential way, um, I also believe the same thing around self-care. Self-care is an ongoing process. It's an iterative process. It's a process that requires a level of introspection and reflection similar to what, what we've all touched upon so far. Um, it's not a menu of options that I can select. So today I'll select, I'm going to get a glass of wine after work, or tomorrow I'm going to go do this. I think those could be part of a larger plan, but without there being more context to the plan, then what you see as this sort of menu of option actually can lead to more stress and more trauma if they're not managed appropriately or managed within a larger sort of ecosystem that's ongoing, that requires a level of introspection and reflection that we um, are not, um, that we're not necessarily thinking about when our work environment is at such an, work goes at such an accelerated pace. The other thing I would last, the last thing I would offer is I learned how as a supervisor to ask better questions rather than asking questions that indict people. Um, or uh, um, I started asking questions that started with the assumption of um, that they are an expert of themselves, of their work, so that I got a better understanding of who they were as an individual so that I could collaborate and be a partner in their learning and development. And again, not the, the adversary they have to work around because I have the positional authority to make their work environment difficult. Um, and so instead of asking, why did you do this? Um, I started asking better questions of what were you hoping to accomplish and walk me through this or walk me through that. And so as I started asking better questions, I started to get less defensive responses. And so people didn't feel like that they had to um, defend their credibility, defend their expertise, defend their jobs to some respect because um, they were reacting to the question that I was asking. And and then I'm frustrated they're getting defensive, yet I'm creating the conditions for them to be defensive. So I learned as a supervisor to ask better questions, questions that help me to get at the backstory and less about um, questions that put people on the defensive and make them feel they're being indicted. Steve, I want to stay with you. And I'm going to actually open uh, this up to the rest of the panel as well. 
but you spoke to obviously wanting to support our, our staff to really try to separate that job identity from their personal identity. And I think one of the interesting things that I'm seeing is, is how, how it's, that's being blurred um, amongst particularly um, um, black staff. Um, and that can be very challenging and difficult. I think about the anger and frustration that many of them feel from what's hap- happening on uh, the national level and the, and the violence towards uh, particularly black identified folks. And most recently the Breonna Taylor decision involving the three officers, um, which has impacted many of my staff. Um, mm-hmm. What advice would you give me to support black identified staff? Um, I would say, you know, our, our work is difficult as, as we've all articulated. It's, it's very complex and that often what we are in responding to the, the issues and topics that we're in response to are also impacting us. So as we're supporting others, we're also being impacted. And that's a lot of pressure, particularly when, um, depending upon how, um, various aspects of your uh, your identity. I, I'll, again, uh, it would help if I could finish the sentence, so let me back up. Um, I think I've had the experience of sharing my story, my experience, and having it dismissed, questioned, not believed, um, and so on top of having the courage to, to, to share, I'm now having to defend my experience um, with others who have no true understanding of its intricacies or complexity. Um, and so what I would say is, can we as supervisors give people space, staff space to be vulnerable? Can we listen to their experience and be present with them without dismissing it, without fixing it? Um, again, that's where I made some mistakes early on in my career as a supervisor is I'm in crisis mode. You want me to fix something? No, you didn't ask me to fix anything. You asked to just share your story. And sometimes people just want a space where they can just share their story. They're not necessarily looking for a solution. They're also looking to be believed. I don't want to have to convince you that what I experience that you will never experience is real. Can we start from the place that my story is real? My experience is real rather than me having to be put on trial around a truth that I live that you will never identify with. So can we give people space to be that? And can we be, um, can we be comfortable with the, the, the disruption that it may create? So we don't get this project finished on the date that I said, or we don't get this task completed as I had originally design, designed it to be completed or when I designed for it to be completed. Can we set aside tasks and still be productive and still care for the people around us whom we're so dependent on in order to complete those tasks? That can we treat our staff as humans and see them as people um, and still be productive? One of the things that I have learned is the balance between relationship and task. And I'm a naturally task-driven person. So you give me a task, I'll give you a plan, I'll tell you when it will be completed. And along the way, we get, we get there. But in my past, and my pathway is a wake of bodies of people that are wounded and beat up on because the way in which we got to the outcome didn't allow us to truly appreciate the contributions of all. And so I think it's about vulnerability. It's about, it's about believing our staff. It's about giving them space and being careful that as you're asking questions, what types of questions are you asking? And I've learned to do more listening, listening than asking. Um, and can we give people the space to do that? And can we not allow the space being uncomfortable for us to dictate our response? Because sometimes I was acting out of my own discomfort with hearing someone's story, um, that I have a high need to respond or react in a way that appears supportive and in reality it isn't. Thank you for that, Steve. And uh, Jane, you wanted to add to this? 
for me, and I am, you know, far from an expert in this uh, area, um, but I think a lot about, you know, in this in this realm to sort of start with understanding that trust is not a given. Um, as we build relationships, supervisee, supervisor, across social identity differences, we really have to be intentional about building trust uh, uh, in these relationships. And that, as Steve mentioned, uh, ultimately for me comes down to recognizing the whole person who's showing up for us um, and, uh, and showing up on behalf of students and really sort of as Steve said, um, you know, pausing the agenda when we need to, um, and really, uh, you know, embracing, embracing wholeness, I think, as often as possible. Um, I, I think there's a, a little bit of a tricky balance here. We're talking about, like, trauma-centered work, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there right now about trauma-centered education, um, which is important to recognize and think about how we respond to trauma, uh, which we're talking about here, but not re-traumatizing folks in our response, right? So really sort of allowing allowing those that we're serving or working with to to um to identify for us what they need and want in that situation and not imposing a certain kind of response uh, that we would think might be most effective um, this week in particular i've been thinking a lot about our um, black women identified educators um, who uh you know anticipated rightly that they would begin to get phone calls and texts and emails from students who share their identities who see them as you know brilliant wise women and mentors and want them to help them make sense of what's what's happened with Brianna Taylor uh, what's happening uh, you know nationally and globally um, and that's an extra tax on, on on those particular educators who also are working through this trauma themselves right who, who hold the identities that are you know we're seeing directly uh, portrayed um, in the media as being victims of violence. And so um, there's, a, there's an added, added experience there. I've just been thinking a lot about the role of Black women identified educators in, in supporting students and others and making sense of what's happening um, and the needs that they also have uh, along, along with that. Thanks, Jane. So you have all, this panel, all of you have dropped some serious awareness and knowledge, and, and I really appreciate a lot of the insights you've, um, you've brought here. And so obviously this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. So now, what are you pondering? What's troubling you? What are you thinking or questioning about? And I'm not going to call on any of you, so y'all can kind of bubble, and, and someone's going to step up and speak first. I can do that. Um, I guess what, 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 I'm, what I'm generally thinking about is I'm very worried about my student affairs colleagues who have been asked to do an impossible task and then asked, never mind, we don't want you to do that task. We want you to do this other equally impossible task, but you only have three days to do it. Um, but I also know that when I talk with people who are not in higher ed in student affairs, uh, everybody feels like they're being asked to do an impossible task. Try teaching kindergarten virtually. That's an impossible task. And people are losing jobs and losing businesses and trying to figure out how to navigate these things. What I'm thinking about uh, today is I'm thinking about the, the, the lessons that, that we've talked about that I keep needing to learn. Um, and really, to be honest with you, I'm thinking less about my professional role and I'm thinking I need to do that at home in my relationship with my children, with myself. So this has been very, valuable to put it in that context as well. So thank you. Thank you, Keith. 
think that one of the themes I've been thinking about um, in my team, one of the themes that we say is that we need to take care of ourselves first, take care of each other second, and then take care of our students. Because if we're not in a good space and if our team isn't in a good space, we can't take care of our students. We say that a lot, um, but I've been thinking a lot about how do we practice that? And especially in light of the last several weeks and being able to, as the, the leader of my team, verbally telling folks, I, I need you to be okay and it is okay with me if you need to step aside and step away and refill your cup. And um, like Steve said earlier with the timelines, it's so easy to get focused on we have to get this done. We have to rebuild the plane that we're flying um, here this year because everything's new that we forget sometimes that it is really about caring for each other and caring for ourselves and we have to be okay and verbalize constantly. It's okay to step away. It's okay to take a day off. Um, it's okay to not hit that deadline. Um, let's make sure we're caring for each other and we're caring for ourselves so that we really can focus on helping our students through a very difficult situation. Thank you, Amanda. I think for me, I, I worry about the constant pivoting and the, the pivoting, the, the, the fluctuations are significant. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if pivot really is the, the right word, but I, I mean, it's, it's a significant shift in the direction we often have to move at such a, an accelerated pace. So I worry about people's energy. I worry about people's exhaustion. I worry about my own. And are, do I get sometimes where do, when do I get caught up in the pace and I'm not able to see outside of myself and see that I'm perpetuating a narrative that I'm often talking about dismantling? Um, and, and I think it's easy for us to fall in the trap of trying to be everything for everyone, particularly when we feel like our livelihoods could potentially be at stake. And so how do we still continue to push back against that narrative that says, to be an effective leader, to be an effective educator means that it has to come at our own expense. The circumstances are ripe for the perpetuation of that narrative. And so I have found myself as I reflect upon my own behavior at times, see there are times you've hit the mark and there are times you have fallen way below it. And so you have got to recenter yourself because it is your team that's looking to you for leadership, for guidance, for direction. And so how do you still push back against that very exploitive narrative um, amid circumstances that really are ripe for its uh, perpetuation? I'm thinking all the time about how the pandemic is exacerbating the in injustices in higher education. And so we are seeing, you know, the veil is lifted for many of us. Um, and so we are constantly reminded of who we're not serving well. Um, and we need to think about how we reform our education to do that better. Um, and then at the same time, we are humans who are also, you know, as we've said, we have our own trauma and we have our own response to the trauma that we are, we are seeing and inundated with in the same way that students are, um, which as Amanda alluded to, it's, it reminds us all of this, the idea of putting on your own oxygen mask before you help anyone else put on their oxygen mask, that we really do need to figure out how to find practices that allow us to remain engaged. Um, and I'm, I'm teaching a course right now on contemporary and future trends in student affairs and higher education. And unsurprisingly, we spend a lot of our time talking about really troubling realities in higher education. It's not a very positive two and a half hours every week. Um, and so we have to, we have to practice what I, I use the term critical hope a lot, where we need to be critical of what's happening in higher education. But again, if we, if we bring that intention and we remember our why, we can remain hopeful about our ability to, to shift higher education to, to be better in the future. 
Thank you, Jane. And really, thank you all. Uh, you know, it's interesting and I, I appreciate you sharing your insights and your wisdom with our audience and really, quite frankly, me. Uh, I, I found a lot of the things that you said very um, helpful. Um, and I just, you know, I, we can keep going, but we have run out of time. And I just want to thank all of you, uh, Keith Edwards, uh, Jane Summers, Stephen Herndon, Amanda Kinner. Um, Thank you. So for the audience, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to Student Affairs Now newsletter or browser archives at studentaffairsnow.com. We are asking, please subscribe to the podcast. Invite others to subscribe, share on your social, leave a five-star review, help us out. It really helps the conversation reach more folks and build a community so we can continue to make this available to everyone. Um, again, my name is Glenn de Guzman. I want to again thank the, today's guests on this episode. Uh, everyone who's watching, listening, thank you. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Love thank yourself. You.